good to look out over the audience and see a number of folks who have been ill but are now feeling better. It's good to have Brother Jamie serving as one of the elders, and uh, I'm looking forward to getting to work with Brother Jamie in that regard. It's always a privilege to be a part of a congregation that loves the Lord and wants to accomplish great things because we realize as we study our Bibles, there are some congregations that were struggling, that had difficult times, and the book of First Corinthians relates to us how the church at Corinth was struggling deeply with a lot of difficulties. And I'm so thankful that in the middle of all the difficulties that were being discussed with the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 has for us a bright light of good things. You see, the truth is when we talk about love, it's often discussed at weddings. Quite frequently when I'm called upon to perform a ceremony, I will make reference to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. It's also used when we talk about the home and about how each home should have love and compassion within it. But the truth is, is that this context is talking about the church. And love is the badge of discipleship. It's that marker that says that you and I are Christians. And Jesus said in John 13, verses 34 and 35, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The Lord says that's the way the people of the world will know that we are his children, because we do have that love for one another. The Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9, it says, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Some congregations need the encouragement. Some practice it on a regular basis. And I'm thankful that studying the book of 1 Corinthians, we get an insight into this wonderful picture. It was needed at Corinth. It was needed because of the difficulties and the problems they were facing. And it's needed at Bobby Branch as well. Here's what we're going to do for the next few minutes as we concentrate on studying 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We will look first of all at the priority of love. Where does it come with regards to the things of this life? Where does it come with regards to spiritual matters? Number two, we will look at the prescription of love the ingredients that are in it. And then finally, the permanence of love as we find in those last few verses. So let's begin, first of all, by looking at the context. As I mentioned last week when we studied chapter 12, chapters 12, 13, and 14 form a discussion of the spiritual gifts. Brother Alan Hires, I remember as a student, presented to us a brief outline of those three chapters he said chapter 12 is a definition of the spiritual gifts. And we looked at them last week as we studied 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Chapter 13 discusses the duration of them. And we'll look at that in the latter part of verse 8 going through verse 13 today. And then number 3 is the discharge of them. How these spiritual gifts were to be carried out in the local work of the church and Lord willing, that's next Sunday morning's sermon. But I will point you to the fact that when you look at the end of chapter 12 
in the beginning of chapter 14, you have, if you will, two bookends, one at the beginning and one at the end with regards to these spiritual gifts. And he said in chapter 12 and verse 31, but earnestly desire the best gifts and yet I show to you a more excellent way. He's talking about the gifts and he says, I want you to desire them. I want you to to have an appeal for them. But he says, I want to show you something that's even better than that. Get to chapter 14 and verse 1. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. If you will look, here is how he is trying to bound them together. The better way, and he's talking about that better means. And so he's talking about a matter of priority. And if you and I in our homes, we realize there have to be some priorities. It may be that in your home you want to enjoy the, the um, cable TV. It may be in your home that you want to be able to enjoy a number of fun things. But you realize you have to have some priorities, some things that have to come above and before that. For instance, you want to have electricity. does very little good to say, I want to have all these electronic devices if you don't have enough money to pay for your electric bill to power them. Even more important things are like food and shelter and clothing. Those are much more important. You have to have higher priorities. And if you start thinking about the spiritual gifts and their relationship to them, he said there's something much better than that, more important than that, that has a higher priority than that. Better than the best gifts, there's a more excellent way. But you see, when you start thinking about these gifts, there were some even of the gifts that were better than the others. For instance, as you notice in chapter 14 and verse 1, he says, especially that you may prophesy. You get to verse 5 and he says, I wish that you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. He who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues. Do you understand that what he's saying is there's some gifts that are better than other gifts, but there's something even better than all the gifts And love was better than all these spiritual gifts. But the question is, I think in many people's mind, what does Paul mean when he says to love? Well, the Greeks were people with very precise language. They had a word for almost every idea, every thought that you could come up with. And they had four different words for love. They were eros, storge, Philia and agape. The word eros, I think you can easily understand it, means the erotic kind of love, the sensual love, the physical love between, for instance, a man and his wife. It's not found anywhere in Scripture. The second one is the word storge, and it means a natural affection. It's only found in passages in the negative for instance, in Romans chapter 1, he talks about those with a, without a natural affection. But the more common words are the word philia and agape. And the word philia, from which we get our word Philadelphia, philanthropist, many other words based upon it, talks about a love of, and it's more of a friendship kind of love. It's a kind where you... You maybe, for instance, will have a good feeling towards someone else. You may love the people who love to fish with you. 
You may love to eat spaghetti. You may love other things. But when we're talking about the kind of deep love, the Bible recommends, the Holy Spirit chose the word agape. And this word is the highest form of it because it's not an emotional term. It's a term of action of what you do. The original King James translation used the word charity in 1 Corinthians 13. In some ways, that's a better translation. Charity describes something you do for someone. However, it some ways is not quite enough because we think of charity as a handout of somebody giving something they don't deserve or maybe giving something because we feel we're superior to them and that's not the case. The word means seeking that person's highest good. Some of us may struggle when the Lord said, love your enemies, we would say. How can I love somebody who treats me so badly? I don't want to be around them. Yet you can love them because you treat them and seek their highest good. You do what is in their best interest always. And we begin to understand the meaning of this term. Well, with that in mind, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's read verses 1 through 3 and see what the Apostle Paul writes. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains... But have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Now, Paul uses some very vivid terms to describe those who had the gifts to the highest degree. And if you'll notice that all-encompassing word, all knowledge, all prophecies. He's talking about someone who possessed all of the gifts to their highest degree, but did not have love. For instance, the tongues of men and angels. Imagine a person who, for instance, may be able to speak five languages. I've met some men who are able to speak 10 to 12 languages, and that's just amazing to me for a person to have that kind of breadth of knowledge. But Paul is saying, if I have the the tongues of men and angels, that ability to communicate between one angel to another, and he says, I have not love, it profits me nothing. And then he speaks about having all knowledge and all faith. The ability to know everything. Imagine, if you will, a person who could quote every word of every verse of the whole Bible. And he says, but if I don't have love, it profits me nothing. And those who would make the extreme sacrifice, I give all of my goods to feed the poor. I give my body to be burned. And he says, if I have not love, it profits me nothing. What Paul is trying to do is to use an illustration here of the highest degree. And he says, if I don't have love, it profits me nothing. And so one can have ability 
and use it even to the point of self-sacrifice and not be motivated by love. And someone says, why would someone give everything they had to the poor? Why would a person even allow himself to give his life and not have love? If you remember Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talked about those who prayed and those who fasted and those who did so to be seen of men. And he said they have received their reward. Many times people are not motivated out of the best interest of others. They're motivated out of the self-interest. They want glory. They want the accolades that go along with it. And they may give for that reason. But Paul says if they don't have love, with regards to the Lord, it profits you nothing. One motivated by love, however, will do everything in his power and with all of his possessions to accomplish good. If you see your neighbor in need in 1 John chapter 3 and he said you hold back your love from them, how does the love of God abide in you? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Show that you love because of what you do. Love is better than the gift and the exercise of them. In fact, love is the best. Some of you who are my age and older remember the old Sears and Roebuck catalogs. You got them every year. And just about in every area, particularly with regards to appliances and tools, they would have good, better, and best. And if you're thinking about all of the things that Paul is discussing here, regardless of the spiritual gifts, he said there's one thing that is the best, that is the highest priority, that is love. Which leads me to the second part, the prescription of love. Beginning with verse 4, going through the first part of verse 8, Paul will describe for us love. And so let's read that together. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, but does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. The solution for the Corinthian church was to really have love for one another. It would resolve so many of the problems that they were facing. I think about 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and the division that had occurred beginning with chapter 1 verse 10 and following. If they had love for one another, they wouldn't be saying, my group is better than your group. If you continue to study, you would think about chapter 5, how that one was thinking more selfishly about what he wanted than for the good and the reputation of the church by living with his father's wife. The lawsuits that existed in chapter 6, the failure to love one another's brethren with the eating of meats, sacrificed to idols in chapters 8 and 10. You see, Paul was trying to persuade them, love is what's most important to you. Well, how do I know what love is? How do I recognize it? Well, verses 4 through 8, Paul provides for us nine ingredients. When I use the word prescription, I think about a doctor who may 
be prescribing for a patient a medication to take. And in this medication, maybe perhaps it includes a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And the pharmacist begins to uh, assimilate those materials together for a medication for the person to take. What comprises biblical love? Love suffers long. Long suffering. That means patient. Real love understands that not everybody is going to respond or act like we want them to. In fact, sometimes our enemies may be those whom we love. But you still have to be patient. When it comes to the Lord's church, not every one of us see everything exactly alike. Sometimes it takes some of us a little bit longer than others. But real love is patient with somebody else. Long-suffering with them. And then love is kind. Paul speaks about that when he writes the Ephesians and he writes the Colossians. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. You know, this kindness that you and I should have to one another. And there's going to be some overlap with some of these terms. And then he talks about love does not envy. The difference between jealousy and envy is simply this. Jealousy, I want what you have. Envy says, I want what you have and I don't want you to have it. But real love can rejoice when someone else does well. When someone else gets a new vehicle and you drive up in the parking lot, what do you do? Do you look at them and say, I wish they didn't have it and I wish I had that? That's envy. Do you, because you love your children, rejoice when they do well and maybe they bring home great grades? Do you say, oh, I wish I had those great grades and not them? No, you don't do that because you love your children. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. Love is humble. Love is not self-focused. It's focused on the other people. Do you remember Paul when he was writing the Philippians In chapter 2, and he said, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Verse 4 of chapter 2, Not looking each of you to his own things, but to the things of others. Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant being found in the fashion of a man. He humbled himself. Oh, I understand what humbleness is. Love does not say, look at me. Love says, I'm looking at you and I'm looking at your needs. Love is courteous in the sense... Paul says it does not behave rudely. You want to know what being rude is? Go shop at Walmart on Saturday afternoon. And you see people who will cut you off with their buggies. Who will, you know, get in front of you and then stand and talk for 30 minutes. So I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to speak at, true love has a respect that does not act rudely to other people. Treats other people nice. As we said earlier, it's also kind. Love is unselfish, does not seek its own. 
if you'll see that this sort of overlaps with some of the others, like being generous and like being humble, unselfish means that I'm willing to give some of what I have because of what I see you need. Again, going back to 1 John chapter 3, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his compassion from him, how does the love of God abide in him? You know, it's not just about what I want. It's about what others need and focus on that. Love is good-tempered, is not provoked. You know, there was a commercial several years ago where a guy put something on his back, his shoulder and he said, all right, knock it off. Knock it off. In other words, I'm just spoiling for a fight. I'm just looking for an opportunity to be angry with you. Sad to say that sometimes in churches, people are just looking for someone else to make a mistake so that they can pounce on them. Well, that's not love. 1 Corinthians 13, the love that he speaks of is one that is not easily provoked. Guileless. That is, that it thinks no evil. You know, when you start thinking about someone else, it's very easy to start evil surmising. That is, to start supposing the worst about someone else, to impose motives upon them that they may not have, to start thinking about someone else, to think, oh, they're doing this for this reason or that reason. True love doesn't start doing that. And sincerity does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. You see, true love is happy when others do right. Disappointed and sad when others do not do right. Paul, as he describes this prescription of love, but now, very quickly, the permanence of love. Let's look at verses 8, the latter part of verse 8, going through verse 13. But where there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Where there is knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. And now abides faith, Hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Now Paul plainly states in the first part of verse 8, love never fails. And he uses a very interesting word, a unique word, if you will, that's in the original language, which talks about falling from a lofty position. It's not just that it would not cease, but it would not fall from its high place. For instance, it's used in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, and Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4. 
Peter would write, You therefore, beloved, since you know these things beforehand, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. It's almost, here you are, you're steadfast with the Lord, and you choose to believe someone who's teaching falsely. He said, you fall from your steadfastness. You're on a perch up here, if you will, and you fall down. Galatians 5, verse 4, you have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Love never fails. It never falls from its lofty position. You do it right. You do it the way God tells you to do. And it will never fail you. On the other hand, prophecies, tongues, miraculous knowledge, they will not continue. They're not going to to stay in their position Because the Lord only intended them to be there temporarily. Because we're thinking about things that are permanent versus things that are temporary. He's trying to explain this to us. He said they would come or continue only until that which is perfect has come. The speaking in tongues, the miraculous knowledge, the gift of prophecy... These were only intended to continue while the church was being established and while the scriptures were being collected and written. But once they were collected, then there was no need. And if you say, well, somebody told me the perfect there was Christ. When the perfect has come, when Christ has come. But you have to remember the way that the context. Paul says, now we know in part And we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect, he's using the word perfect is complete. It's almost like you have the pieces of a puzzle. And you're putting them together, but when you put the last piece in, you've got the whole puzzle now. I want you to think of the miraculous revelation that came through Paul and that came through Peter and it came through John and they assembled it together and it's what we call the New Testament. When that came, the parts were to be done away with. It started when the Lord sent the Holy Spirit upon the apostles and it ceased when the last person upon whom an apostle had laid his hands died. Only temporarily. Unlike the miraculous, there are things that abide. That was only for the first century. Here we are in the 21st century Those miraculous gifts were not intended to continue to our day. And people today who are claiming them are either mistaken, misled, or deceiving. Some people, I believe, think they are still continuing because they're misled and they're deceived. However, there are some people who know better and they are deceiving But Paul says these three, faith, hope, and love, abide. After the end of the miraculous gifts, you still had faith, you still had hope, you still had love. And there's no denying how important faith is. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 says, But without faith it's impossible to please God. 
For he who comes to God must believe that he is and he is rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That means that even today men still must have faith in God. Then there is hope. Hope is what keeps us motivated. God has made promises. I trust those promises. It is the fact that I believe those promises are true that keeps me motivated every day to try to deal with the difficulties of life. In Romans 8 and verse 24, Paul would write, For we are saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one hope for what he sees? He's talking about we've not yet received it. We've still got a confident expectation for it. The passage to me that's just so telling is Hebrews 6 and verse 19. There is a hope, or this hope, is the anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. It's the anchor of the soul. It's what keeps us motivated. Faith is great. It's essential. It's impossible to please God without it. Hope is what keeps us motivated, what keeps us anchored. But love excels them both. And what you're saying is we talk about faith, hope, and love. And he says love is greater. That's not putting down faith. That's not putting down hope. That's saying love is the supreme thing of those things that abide. And so there's no diminishing the value of faith and hope. But it does assert the preeminence of love. Now, love is such an important study in the New Testament. It deserves deep study. In fact, I started looking and saying, well, maybe I ought to teach a class on 1 Corinthians 13. Could I teach a whole quarter on this one chapter? For those of you who know how slowly I go sometimes, you say, well, could you do it in a quarter? But this book is amazing. This chapter is enlightening. And those of us in the Lord's church need to understand the place and the need for love in the body. We here in this congregation need it as much as the church at Corinth did. The future of the church depends on our loving like God has called us to love. Get to chapter 16 and verse 14. Let all that you be done, do done with love whether it is you're giving a cup of cold water in His name, whether you are serving uh, a person who has no food, no clothes, or whether it's you're preaching the gospel. You do it with love. And that's the way people know who we are. One last verse, and then we're going to sing the invitation song. John 14, 15. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He's commanded us to believe in his son, Jesus Christ. He has commanded that we repent of our sins, Luke 13, 3 and 5. He has commanded that we confess his name before men. And then he has commanded that we be baptized in water for the remission of sins. Mark 16 verse 16. Acts chapter 2 verse 38. 
If you love the Lord, why not do that this morning? And if you are a Christian and you say, you know what, just like in my family, maybe I've not been loving like I should. And in my spiritual family, I see that I've been walking not in love. We can pray with you. Would you come as together we stand and sing?